The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Still There edition. It's Wednesday, September 26, 2018, and on today's show, the podcast Serial has returned for its third season, and this time it's deconstructing the justice system in a single city, Cleveland. We're spending the whole season in a Cleveland courthouse. Then we will talk about the recent spate of redemption essays from disgraced men like John Hockenberry and Gian Gomeshi that have run in Harper's and in the New York Review of Books, leading to the firing of Ian Baruma, the editor of the New York Review of Books. And finally, Forever is the new series from Amazon Video that stars Fred Armisen and Maya Rudolph as a couple whose bucolic but boring existence is shaken up by an extremely high-concept premise. Stephen Metcalf is out this week, but I am joined, thank goodness, by my regular co-host Julia Turner, Slate's editor. Hi, Julia. Hi, Dana. And we also are joined this week, excitingly, by Gabriel Roth, who is the host, one of the hosts of Slate's parenting podcast, Mom and Dad are Fighting, and also the editorial director of Slate Plus. Hey, Gabe. Hello. I also just have to interject to say that last week's episode was very fun. You guys did a lot of mellifluous reading aloud of things. And the quote that Sam Anderson read in endorsements, the Annie Dillard quote about the weasel getting right? carried oh, that was so into good. the sky. That was my high school yearbook quote. How did you guys read that <laughs> fucking passage from Annie Dillard when I was not here? How did you have such a good high school yearbook quote? What the hell? I was a little, uh, whatever. <laughs> some some person smarter and wiser than me pointed me to that text. I, Wait, can't, I can't claim credit. I've always been told that your high school yearbook quote was a line from the song Car by Built to Spill. They, they're both on there. All right. Don't worry. <laughs> this is the week of going back and checking the yearbook. <laughs> and they're both on there. Glad to hear it. I don't know if we had quotes in my high school yearbook. I have no memory. I've blocked out so much of high school. Did you have them, Gabriel? No, I grew up in England where we don't have sort of paraphernalia around like enjoying or celebrating your high school experience. It's meant to be something that you kind of trudge through and then leave <laughs> as quickly as possible. Yeah. There's no paraphernalia? There's no yearbooks. There's no prom. There's no homecoming. You what don't... happens at the end? Everybody... A-levels and then out? Yeah. That's you don't exactly even throw right. your mortarboard hat in the air? No, none oh of that. Oh, my God. You, just, you, so bleak. You, you finish and then you're like, I am fucking glad to be out Is of here. Is there even a graduation ceremony? No. It's just schools <laughs> out yeah. in the summer? Yeah, you do your exams and then like you don't have to go back. Wow. How does that change childhood and teen movies? <laughs> I feel like it, it, yes, we don't have the cinematic tradition of all of the teen movies that revolve around these big like prom night and are you going to in the back seat of the car or whatever. We don't have that sort of culture. Um, but we, I think it's more, it, it, it's more realistic. I think it prepares you better for the adult world. But there's no celebration of your achievements. Yeah. We're like, <laughs> yeah. we're just trying to get through all this. Welcome to the Grim Slog, mates. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the Grimm's Log begins. So the first season of the podcast serial, which I think is largely agreed with sort of the podcast that launched podcasting to a larger, much larger audience than it had enjoyed before, was all about one case, about the murder of Heyman Lee and the prosecution of Adnan Syed. It kicked off a boom in true crime podcasting that we're still in the midst of today. And this time, you might say that the camera is pulling out somewhat. Instead of laser focusing on one single case, they're looking at the whole justice system of of one city and of this one particular courthouse in Cleveland. Let's listen to a clip from the first episode. And just to set this up, this is a moment when our host, Sarah Koenig, who was also the host of the much-listened-to first season of Serial, gets on an elevator in the Cleveland courthouse and becomes aware of all the racial hierarchies occupying the elevator around her. Coming up from the lobby one morning, a young black woman is holding a little portable speaker. The white people in the elevator give each other looks. 
I don't want to reciprocate their looks. Instead, I decide it's my duty to break the tension by saying the lamest thing I possibly can. To be clear, that wasn't my plan. It's just what came naturally to me, apparently. Sometimes There's a soundtrack for the elevator. Mm-hmm. Not like your Muzak you usually get. She doesn't even bother with a mm-hmm this time. Now I keep my head down to avoid the looks the black people are probably giving each other. This place is primarily black and white. The majority of the courthouse staff is black. Clerks are mostly black. Most of their managers are white. In the sheriff's department, most of the security guards are black. Most of the deputies are white. Most of the attorneys are white. Almost all the county judges are white, and their bailiffs are white. Most of the defendants and crime victims are black. In the cocoon of the elevator, everyone's polite to each other. Pretends nothing is weird about this. But if the elevators were calibrated to detect a power imbalance in the load, like a socially conscious clothes dryer, they'd be perpetually on the fritz. So, I don't know, that, I think to me that clip already gets at something that bothered me in the first season of Serial and is starting to bother me in this one, in spite of all the great audio that they got and the interesting social observations and the really smart idea of following the, the justice system in, in the way that they're tracking it. There's something about the tone of Serial that is that now just officially bugs me. There's something about the plinkety-plonk, background music, and the somewhat self-centered narration that has to focus on this person who's guiding us through and not le- that person can't be neutral. They have to have a personality and quirks and use slang. It's something to do with that This American Life storytelling style, a podcast that, as we've discussed before, I could never get into no matter how interesting the stories it was telling because of that tone and that framing. Am I am I stupid to get hung up on these details? You are not stupid, Dana, and no one would ever say so, but you are so wrong. This season is so exciting. To me, this season is like... Uh, some of the best storytellers in the game getting drafted to tell one of the most difficult to illuminate stories. And one of the things that's interesting to me about how this season is unfolding is the light it sheds on what the arc of Serial has been for the three seasons. Like, Serial turns out to be a super weird name for the podcast. It's not actually interested in serialized storytelling at all because they did it really well for their first season and then they realized that all the tricks of serialized storytelling were a little bit manipulative and cheap and they've been kind of challenging themselves season after season to get to use ever more sophisticated storytelling styles so season two which was a bit of a bummer if you were just looking for like another hot whodunit um i actually ended up finding by the end to be super rich and interesting about uh military justice and mental health and the duress of being a soldier all of which are interesting and underexplored topics in our largely ignored 17 years long wars. Um, And I I don't think they quite achieved, uh, you know, massive. I'm sure they had a massive audience, but it, it was not quite the cultural phenomenon of season one, as Gabe noted. But this attempt to take the mundane wrongness of so much of our criminal justice system and use all of their storytelling craft to make it something riveting and illuminating and the economy with which they uh, draw this picture and draw analytical conclusions at the same time, the combination of narrative and analysis is so impressive to me. Like I, the, other, the, the piece of journalism, recent journalism that it reminds me most of is Michael Lewis in Vanity Fair uh, describing what actually happens at the Department of Energy and the USDA. It's just like the the best storytellers in the country are going to apply their storytelling skill sets to the most 
uh, unglamorous, bureaucratic, systemic problems that do not lend themselves to the tropes of a fascinating feature narrative and fucking make us interested anyway. It feels to me like, you know, Elvis getting drafted or something. It's like these these monster narrative talents are avoiding the cheap tricks and going for the really tough shredded wheat stories. And I think it's great. Yeah, on the merits, totally team Julia. This is going to be a fantastic podcast. I will get to the separate episodes in a second. I think episode two in particular is just an amazing piece of storytelling that reports on something that I had never heard portrayed in that kind of depth and with that kind of narrative richness before and something that's super important. I, I want to push back a little bit against your championing of their abandoning the serialized narrative form. I don't know that this is a case of their them raising their ambitions. I think this is a case of them retreating a little bit. Um, I think the premise of Serial when it started was, hey, we're this American life, we're this great team of narrative audio journalists, and we can tell us, we tell stories that are 20 minutes long, and sometimes we tell stories that are an hour long. What happens if we tell a story that's 10 hours long? Couldn't we do something really cool? And season one started out seeming like it was going to be that, and then they couldn't stick the landing. It turns out that if you pick an ongoing journalistic situation like a trial and you tell it in a serialized way, you implicitly suggest that you're going to provide an ending. And, of course, real life doesn't always provide you a neat ending. I think people listening to that season were thrilled that they were about to find out either that a guy had been wrongfully convicted or that this guy was, in fact, really a murderer. And, in fact, of course, we don't find that out at all. What we get is a sort of meditation on uncertainty, which is a cop-out at the end of that story. No, it's, it's true. A, it's, it's, a story that it's, does, it's a story that doesn't have an ending successfully. And then, in the second, and then in the second season, they, they start with one story, and instead of doing it as a serial, instead of doing it from beginning to end as a narrative, they do it as a, like, let's shift our focus back and let's go in and let's pull out, which is interesting and had some good results, but it's not a serial. It's not end-to-end narrative. And I think in this case, what we've seen is that they, they've given up on that idea. They've said, okay, it turns out that doing a 10-hour-long single audio narrative that is also that is both engaging and journalistically accurate is just too much to ask. And so instead, we're going to do a season of This American Life all about one single topic, and it's a fantastic topic, and we're going to do great stories, and here's two fantastic episodes, and I bet there's eight more or however many more to come, but it's not a serial, and and we should, like, get over that. I'm already over it. That was a pedantic critique, I think. <laughs> but neither of you agree at all with my thoughts about fra- the framing and tone some, somehow taking well, away from the storytelling. So, so I will agree. I found the framing shtick in season one to be annoying the kind of like so dana what's it like we're driving around you know the, the <laughs> literal dana right there was yes, an editor sorry, dana. There, there, right there was an actual dana um i feel like the way that they used the personal narrative there in this season is to comment entirely on kind of positionality with regard to class and race in ways that are essential and sophisticated actually like that um that moment where she's recognizing the racial dynamics in the elevator and recognizing her own place in them as someone who desires not to be part of them, but of course is part of them, feels to me like part of the broader evolution in the culture in the last four or five years where more people seem more aware of not taking white upper middle, the white upper middle classness from which most media has has been generated for the last 50 years to maybe less than 50, actually. I mean, journalism used to be a more working class job. 25 years, uh, not as a neutral 
position of observation, but as a as a subjective position from which to enter this courthouse and and reckon with the tangles between these white power structures and these mostly black victims and defendants. For example, when we hear the voice of Emmanuel Jochi, who is a This American Life producer that they recruited to be part of the season, who was in Cleveland for a full year and who we hear from from time to time. Uh, we're not treated to like banter between the characters and the shtick of their exploring of this subject. He's doing his reporting, she's doing hers, and the kind of mannered personality bits, I think, are serving a different purpose in this season. Right. Well, the vast majority of, of what we hear happens inside the courtroom. And uh, and that's that's the unusual. That's the new stuff that this podcast brings that that is really riveting when when it kicks in. And, uh, you know, we can't we can't take cameras in, in a lot of these courtrooms, I guess. But I'm surprised that audio is allowed as, as much as it is. And she really gets the sort of day to day. These are not big trials. These are people coming in for parole hearings and just getting, uh, you know, sort of slapped on the wrist by the judge. And you hear how race and class plays itself into all of those interactions in a way that's fascinating and disturbing and very telling. We should talk a little bit about what's in each of the two episodes. I think the first one um, is about the story of a, a defense attorney who's at the courthouse who gets assigned to, uh, you know, as a public defender or as a as a court assigned court appointed defender um, to to various cases. And he's now assigned to one in this episode. He's assigned to one uh, about a young woman who gets into a bar fight and, and sort of spirals out of control and ends up hitting a cop, although not in a very considered or deliberate way, but then is, is up on a charge for assaulting a police officer. And then the second one is about judges and in particular about one judge in the courthouse. And he's an incredible character. And I think this is an incredible episode. Let's hear a clip of this is Judge Gall from the Cleveland courthouse hectoring a defendant. Please tell me you don't have children. This woman had pleaded guilty to theft, an incident at a Macy's. You have children? How many? Okay. Her lawyer tries to help her out. He explains she has one child and a second on the way. And you're pregnant now. Even better. Wonderful. Who's the first baby's daddy? Okay, so that was Judge Gall. The producer spent a lot of time in his courtroom listening to him and, and capturing the way he talks to these defendants and then the way he adjudicates their cases. And it becomes this sort of gradually, increasingly chilling portrait of these these little dictators, these little kings who within this small sphere have basically absolute, basically unchecked power. That's a point that the show makes at the end of the episode. Uh, and he's a guy who thinks he's doing the right thing and who thinks he knows enough to make the right decisions and isn't taking, it turns out, is not taking his job as seriously and his, his very weighty job. He's not taking it as seriously as he should. And and it, it, it was very, very powerful about something that happens all the time and that we don't really spend much time on. Yeah, I think something that I kept thinking of as you saw, Gabe, as you describe it, these individual fiefdoms that each judge is running and how important it is which judge you get, right? Because they each have their own style. One of them likes to give parole. One of them likes to, you know, do tougher sentencing when, you know, one of them is more focused on kind of rehabilitation. 
And it just reminded me of public education and all of the flaws it has and how much it matters what school you happen to land in, what principal happens to be working there, what teacher's classroom you get in, because those are also sort of individual fiefdoms in which you may have people who really believe that they're implementing the public good and that they're doing a public service by you know, running their classroom as a, as a tight ship, while the kids in that classroom may experience it as being bullied and ignored. And this idea that the public institutions that we all depend on and are channeled through are hierarchized and walled off in that way and have that kind of systemic injustice built into them in this in this way that's made invisible from the outside, right? Where you can just say, well, it's a school and it's a courthouse and not sort of realize the different currents of power that are running through it. That to me was the most revelatory thing that was uncovered by the podcast so far. All right. Well, all this, of course, is based on having heard only two hours, two episodes of the new serial. I'm sure we're all going to keep listening. I am, even despite my my tone critiques. The, the subject matter is just too fascinating, and I, I want to see where it goes. You both agree, right? Absolutely. So we recommend it. Go out there and listen to the new serial and let us know what you thought at facebook.com slash culturefest. Before we move on to the next topic, Julia, what is a business today? In Slate Plus today, we're going to be talking about our personal picks for the 21st century book canon, inspired by the Vulture piece, The 100 Best Books of the 21st Century So Far. I think our segment will be the several odd best books of the 21st century of the ones that have been read by Dane and Gabe and Julia <laughs> so far. Um, so get ready for our definitive and authoritative list on that subject. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus, our membership program, which is a great way to support us and the journalism that we do. For $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. So in the last two weeks, pieces by two men, John Hockenberry and Gian Gomeshi, have appeared in Harper's and the New York Review of Books. Both men have been accused of sexual harassment in the workplace, John Hockenberry of inappropriately touching, kissing, and more, and Gian Gameshi of sexual assault, including biting and choking women. Both men lost their jobs as radio hosts at WNYC and the Canadian Broadcasting Company, respectively, but their essays signal an attempt at redemption. They're trying to describe their time in exile, as Hockenberry puts it, the title of his essay, and the pain they've endured as pariahs in their fields. So these two essays, which had the bad luck of breaking around the same time as the Brett Kavanaugh nomination scandal that's unfolding right now, uh, won these two men a lot of public opprobrium, mocking, jeering. We talked about talking about this on the podcast last week, Julia, and one of the reasons I wanted to wait was that I really wanted to hear your take as an editor about it. And I'm glad we did wait because since then there have been more developments to discuss, including the firing of Ian Baruma, the editor of the New York Review of Books in part because of an interview in Slate, an absolutely uh, gloves-off interview in Slate with Isaac Chotner, in which Baruma revealed how uh, unaware he seemed or, or oblivious he seemed to why the essay that he had published caused such an outcry. So there's a whole lot to talk about here. We can talk about the essays themselves. We can talk about Baruma's firing. I feel like we've had a lot of discussions about Me Too kinds of stories. I mean, for very good reason in the past uh, slightly over a year now since the Harvey Weinstein story broke. But this one has a slightly different bent because this is sort of uh, the second wave, you might say, right? I mean, this is people that we've already heard about in the Me Too scandals and stories now coming back after some period of exile, a longer one in Gomeshi's case, his 
his case actually predated Harvey Weinstein by several years, right? And uh, and then one from Hockenberry, who's only spent, I think, about nine months in the wilderness. So this is a whole raft of stuff to discuss. But Julia, since we were waiting for your editorial <laughs> judgment on this, you you go first. What what do you have to say about the uh, the second wave, the redemption wave? <sighs> I feel conflicted about it, honestly, because I don't believe that there should be any area of human experience that is off limits for inquiry and exploration. And simply as a voyeuristic uh, journalistic experience, it's kind of interesting to hear how these guys think about what's happened to them. And I see and recognize and understand the response of people who uh, think that to show concern about the emotional state of these men, you know, who've been accused of harassment, abuse, and all kinds of reprehensible behavior, and to foreground uh, their loss, I'm doing air quotes here if you can't hear it in my voice, um, the, the loss of their prestige and positions and careers feels obtuse. I totally understand that critique. I don't think either of these pieces serves their authors or the publications that publish them well because they give the men uh, too much room to indulge their own self-pity. But I'm not, I'm, I don't regret reading them. Like, it's kind of interesting to hear what these guys think about this. I think a world where you only cared what these guys think and you didn't care about the experiences of the women, um, I would find more upsetting. But what about the editorial judgment of of running these pieces as they were run? I mean, I, I yeah, no, the, the I, John Hockenberry piece. Let's let's. For I those, do not endorse that. I do not endorse. Would that. you not be have been embarrassed, deeply embarrassed, for Slate to have run anything like either of these two pieces? I would. Slate would not have run anything like either of these. And I'm not two saying pieces. I'm not saying for those who haven't read the pieces that it is it would be embarrassing to run them because they tell the point of view of someone who has lost their job because of me too. I like you, I don't agree I don't think that that in essence is a terrible thing for a magazine to try to do. Slate would have been embarrassed to run them, I hope, because they were just absolutely abjectly terrible pieces of writing as either self-consideration as an argument for anything, as a analysis or investigation. They just they contained nothing but sort of self-pity and in the case of the Hockenberry piece this this almost I don't know how to describe it, Gabe. Take it away. It, it, what did he do in those 7,000 words? I don't even know. It is bizarre. It's bizarre. These are two magazines, Harper's and the New York Review of Books. These are two great storied literary magazines, maybe past their prime a little bit. Maybe they are no longer quite in their the height of their glory. But these are two magazines that over the course of their however many hundreds of years of history combined have published some of the great writers and, and also obscure writers doing magnificent things, writing fantastic and learned and thorough and always finely crafted and well-honed essays. They're magazines that are about writing and they're magazines that that present themselves as being by and for people with a literary sensibility and sensitivity. And the fact that either one of them, and especially both of them in the same month, would run these things that are, they're just, it's just a whine. It's just thousands of words of unfiltered, unmediated, uncrafted whining. And, and the fact that they would abrogate their, their standards and their literary sensibility to that extent tells you something really interesting, I think, about just how fascinating and desirable this particular perspective, the perspective of the disgraced sexual harasser or monster or whatever, is to a particular class of literary editor. 
Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that's really disturbing and interesting about it. And, and it actually circles back around to the stuff we were discussing with Serial of like, who's who are the people who make the media? What is the point of view of the media? And the point of view of kind of haute literary media is like, what do middle-aged to a little bit older white men think about the changing world and the changing mores of Me Too? And I have certainly been in conversations, and I would be willing to bet that you two have also been in conversations where in private, men of a certain age express a little bit of confoundment and confusion about this new world where, well, what if you just wanted to make a pass at somebody? And isn't that actually kind of charming? And what about flirting? And oh, gosh. Lord Byron, Julia, what happened to the romance of <laughs> Lord Byron? What about Chopin? Um, you know, the, the sort of befuddlement of uh, a certain generation of men about the way in which the world and to them sort of fundamental understandings of human relations are changing is real. It's a real force. And it, and most of them kind of know that you you sort of whisper it at a cocktail party and you don't tweet it necessarily and you probably don't publish it in the pages of your August magazine. Um, and I think that these publications in particular, and Slate does this too, you know, prides, pride themselves on surfacing unpopular viewpoints or countervailing viewpoints or viewpoints that seem to challenge whatever the the kind of thrust of the moment is. So one of the thrusts of the moment is uh, let's listen to and believe women and bring down the the men who've silently stomped on their careers for years. Good. Uh, You know, you could see the appeal of like, well, but you know, what about these men? What is that like? Wouldn't that be interesting? Not, of course, is everything we're doing, but just, you know, what an interesting place to go and be. And then somehow having them both appear at once and both be so flabby um, exposes the 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 ill-consideredness of that editorial impulse of just the, these guys don't actually, the guys who are capable of this kind of behavior, I have yet to, to hear or see one truly, truly reckon in a reasonable way with what they've done, the amount of excuse making and, you know, why wasn't it like this? And of course, some of the allegations aren't true. Maybe some of the allegations aren't true. I don't know. Like, yes, it is possible to be falsely accused of certain things. But the the weaseliness of both oh, the of these. dishonesty, just the intellectual and emotional dishonesty of both of these pieces. I was completely staggered. It actually went I had seen all the outcry online and thought, oh, they sound so long and depressing to read. And unless we were going to talk about them in the show, I was just going to ignore them. But I'm really glad I read both of them, if only because you could not have invented a fiction writer could not invent an exercise in self-justification that is more absurd and florid and just unintentionally self-revealing than that that John Hockenberry essay, for example. I think that's right. I think if you take, I think the Gameshi one, when you put them together, you can see that the Gameshi one is marginally more sophisticated in as much as uh, Hockenberry is just saying, look at what happened to me. It was terrible. Isn't this so unfair? Maybe I did some bad stuff, but look at what they did to me. The whole first paragraph is like about the awards on his shelf, like my Peabody or whatever. I used to have this and now I have nothing. It's so terrible. Whereas the Gameshi one is in its way a marginally sophisticated defense brief. What he says is, yes, I may have been a cat. 
yes, I may have behaved badly. I he says, I was emotionally thoughtless. I was critical and dismissive. And then look, I suffered for it. And in suffering, I found redemption. And now look at me making friends with women on a train or at a karaoke bar. And so there's, there's a sort of narrative arc to it. There's a like coming of age story where the guy behaves badly and then he suffers and is punished. And now he's learned to behave well and he's redeemed. And of course, it's entirely deceptive. It's, it's mendacious in every particular. Right. The there's no mention he, of choking or punching. No, the, the things that he cops to doing are not the things that he was accused of doing. And he says several people accuse me. It was something like 20. 20 people. 20 people. And, and, and yet, if you read this piece in the New York Review of Books and you haven't been following the case closely, and let's say you're not on Twitter because instead you're a subscriber to the New York Review of Books, you will get the idea that here's a guy who made some mistakes and now is taking responsibility for it and now is ready to get a radio show again. Um, all right. Let's move on to the Inbarima question, though. All right. So Ian Baruma, the editor of the New York Review of Books, who just took over about a year ago um, after the death of Bob Silvers, the illustrious founder and legendary editor who'd guided the sensibility of the place for decades. Um, you know, Baruma, who was a, a writer, really, and not an editor prior to taking on this role and sort of a public intellectual, uh, had been in place for a year. He, We've been using the word fired in the segment. I believe it's more accurate to say he was forced to resign uh, he has given some complaining interviews since, uh, and among his complaints are that he was forced out by an advertiser boycott, which in general you don't want advertisers to be able to dictate who edits publications. That is a reasonable thing to complain about. Um, there have also been countervailing statements from the New York Review of Books staff saying that the piece did not meet its editorial standards uh, and that the staff was particularly upset by the way in which Baruma represented the decision-making around the essay uh, in his interview to Isaac, he said that there had been a collective process and everyone had discussed it and agreed that they should publish this piece. In the statement from the staff, they said that, in fact, no women had seen it and that objections had not been heeded. Um, and then apparently, just as we've been taping, do, 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 do breaking news from the New York Review of Books. Apparently, 110 contributors to the New York Review of Books have issued a statement saying, as contributors to the New York Review of Books, we are writing to express our dismay at the departure of Ian Baruma. He's proved to be an outstanding editor. Under his guidance, the publication has maintained the highest intellectual standards, extended its range, and expanded its body of contributors. We find it very troubling that the public reaction to a single article, reflections from a hashtag, repellent, though some of us may have found this article, should have been the occasion for Ian Baruma's forced resignation. Given the principles of open intellectual debate on which the NYRB was founded, his dismissal in these circumstances strikes us as an abandonment of the central mission of the review, which is the free exploration of ideas. How do we feel about the forced resignation of Ian Baruma? I mean, I think the case that they're making in that letter is the best case that you can make, which is this was a colossal fuck up, but you shouldn't fire an editor for one fuck up. I don't know that I agree with that because the fuck up is, in this case, it's not just printing a piece that's a mendacious self-defense by a guy who's accused of monstrous sexual violence, um, but also then failing to articulately defend the decision to do that, failing to to uh, manage a process by which the staff can, can stay at the magazine in good conscience. Um, it seems like a lot of the editorial staff at the magazine were not happy to continue working there under Baruma. Um, and and, and that may be a situation in which continuing to work there is untenable. But if you're going to make a case that he should stay, I think that the case that the, this letter is making is probably the best you can do. Yeah. I mean, I was very surprised that he was forced to resign. Like the piece seemed like a bad mistake uh, and his defense of it seemed really uh, ill-conceived and underprepared and clueless, like sort of obtuse in the way that an editor should try not to be. Um, 
but not you know but not a not a firing offense like not a um not something that should as its own isolated incident on top of an impeccable record result in the end of a person's running of an organization you'd like to see a little bit more capacity of that person to learn from or about the incident um like perhaps a subsequent interview with someone else in response to the Isaac interview where he thought about it more and expressed a different view might have been a better next step than being forced to resign and giving the a very um another whiny interview about a man who was ousted from his position of power <laughs> somehow somehow the two <laughs> stories have begotten a third um so I, I I was surprised by the outcome, and I'm not surprised that a set of contributors is upset by it. What do you think, Dana? I see why there is a, a live debate about it. I don't think that it's a one-sided issue with, with no possibility for discussion. But after that Slate interview, it did not surprise me that a large number of his staff would turn against him. I wonder, Julia, if you were if you were at all proud that Slate, in a way, was was the reason that this story went further, I think. I mean, I think if he had just run this piece and not made a complete fool of himself, in my opinion, in that interview with Isaac Chotner, where he just seemed to demonstrate complete blindness to what the entire Me Too movement has meant and is about. And essentially to be, I mean, talk about shades of the Kavanaugh nomination. He seemed to be sort of doubling down with his guy. And that to me was just such an unappealing profile for an editor of what's supposed to be this magazine of openness to ideas to present. It just it seemed like the opposite of exactly what you just read, that letter of protest from the contributors, in that he was trying to shut down debate and say, you know, what we did was fine and uh, and not himself to engage in any of the self-reflection that Giangomeshi was being savaged for not having engaged in. So as you say, it just becomes this like, you know, infinitely reflecting set of mirrors where now how many months do we have to wait for Ian Baruma's essay about his shelf full of awards? Yeah. I mean, I have I guess I have three feelings to the to the first question. Was I proud? I mean, I'm very proud of Isaac Chotner, who's a wonderful interviewer for us and who's interview has rightly been praised for how precisely it was set up and framed and the particular points of the essay on which he questioned Baruma. Isaac, I think, was particularly aggressive about almost a similar question to what what Gabe was suggesting about how you could have presented the Hockenberry diatribe as a found artifact as opposed to a endorsed centerpiece of the issue. Um, The way in which the magazine allowed Gomeshi to diminish what he'd been accused of, the manner in which he'd been accused of it, uh, is the part that feels like a real abrogation of journalistic responsibility. The 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 free exploration of intellectual ideas needs to come with a, a kind of rigorous set of responsibility around making sure your facts and assumptions and priors are all uh, you know rigorously vetted and and appropriate. And from a from a stable foundation, you can explore all kinds of ideas. But when the foundation is rotten and you let a guy say that online rumors were circulating that there were several incidents, and in fact the Toronto Star had an incredibly detailed and vetted, you know, basically like the New York Times of Canada had an incredibly vetted, uh, rigorous investigation, and twenty people came out, and some of the accusations included punching women in the head, like. You, you can't sweep that under the rug. And Isaac was wonderful and methodical in, in pressing Burim on exactly the points that he needed to be pressed on. So I was very proud of the interview. Um, I won't say that I'm like proud of the scalp. Like the point of the interview was not to oust Ian Baruma. It was to illuminate what was wrong with the essay. And I think it's always hard to know from outside an institution what is truly going on inside an institution. I think if Ian Baruma is an excellent editor who runs his staff well 
and made this one mistake. Uh, and if he is, was forced to resign because of advertiser pressure or because of a panicked response to Twitter upset, that would be dismaying. And I would not relish that. I would certainly not um, hang that trophy on my wall because we're all fallible. All editors are fallible. I've made mistakes. I'm sure I'll make more. I also just have the hunch, knowing how these things work, that it is unlikely that that is the whole story. I think kind of failing to recognize what the faults were with the essay afterwards seems to have contributed. I think the relationship with the staff that seemed to be hinted at by the statement yesterday must be contributing to it. Um, so I don't, I don't find it cheering, but I sort of feel like I don't know their business and they probably know their business better than me or Twitter or probably even the contributors. I feel like the staff probably knows best what's up. All right. Well, this story and many other similarly complex and upsetting stories will no doubt be emerging soon, but we will wrap this one here for now. And if you have your own 7,000-word <laughs> treatise on the, on this story, feel free to post it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right. Topic three today is Forever, the new comedy series from Amazon Video. It was created by Alan Yang and Matt Hubbard, and it's about a couple, June and Oscar, played by Maya Rudolph and Fred Armisen, who live in Riverside, California. They've been married for 13, 14 years at the beginning, I believe. And we see in a montage that they have a comfortable and yet utterly boring existence together in which he serves for the same anniversary meal every single year. And they go fishing together and sort of sit together in quiet tedium until a ski trip, which they go on in the very first episode of the show, changes the trajectory of both of their lives. Maybe before we get into this story's big twist and talk about whether and how we will or won't spoil it, we should listen to a clip from the show. So here we will hear June and Oscar sitting around one day having one of their pleasantly boring marital discussions. Hey, what do you think is the all-time best way to sit ever? It's easy. Cross-legged, left over right. Okay. See, it's comfortable. It's fun. Put your coffee right here on your knee. Ah, oh, but don't you think you're being a little sexist? I mean, that'd be fine if I were wearing jeans, but what if I decided to put on a pencil skirt? You'd be getting a real show right now. I say, if you're gonna cross your legs, why don't you go all the way? See that? Stable, compact, right? And the best part is, I'm not showing off my genitals. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, you're being sexist. What? Oh, yes. Look, in your version, look at that. This crushes my genitals. Oh. It's like a vice. Can I just say about that exchange, which Willa Paskin, our wonderful TV critic, highlighted in her review, that that's the kind of, like, cutesy-mannered stuff that people do on early dates when they're still, like, figuring each other out and trying to figure out how much fun it would be to, to be companions over time but like not actually how people interact with each other when they've been together for decades. And I did not like this show. I watched all eight episodes of this show. How did that come to be? Uh, in part because it was just sort of there and the episodes were short and uh, maybe I was just zoning out to them. But 
But in a way, because I wanted to see what happened, not because it was making me laugh. I agree, Julie, that there's kind of an underlying stiffness to it. You almost never laugh out loud during this supposed comedy. Um, But the premise is so high concept and weird that I felt like I couldn't even talk about it without knowing where it was going. So I ended up almost willy nilly watching all eight episodes of this show. And I will say that it is a very strange combination of, as you say, sort of stilted and unfunny marital comedy and very weird kind of metaphysical storytelling that um, that veers off in all kinds of directions that, well, we'll have to spoil things to get into, but we, we will get into. So it has this strange combination of radically fascinating bizarreness and dullness. Gabe, what, what do you think? Um, well, uh, first of all, I think Julia's point about falseness is exactly right. There's not a single moment in this show that's connected to anything genuine. The entire thing is is uh, like it's it's false from from the top to bottom. The dialogue is false, but also the the small directorial moments are false. They go there's a moment when they go on the ski trip and they're getting out of the car and they get out of the car and Shemaya Rudolph says, "Oh my God, it's freezing! I'm so cold here!" and they get back in the car and neither of them has zipped up their jacket all the way. No one is even bothering to make it look as though they're actually cold. There's a moment when they're eating a ham on the beach and he says it's difficult because we don't have any utensils. You have to use your hands. And then the ham is like out of shot below where the camera is. And then you see them there picking up perfectly sliced pieces of ham that have so that they've <laughs> theoretically ripped off of this they ham. They also previously established that she brought him a knife on the beach, remember? So Every- they actually had a utensil to eat the ham. Everything about it is just complete bullshit. And the weird thing <laughs> is, the weird thing is Maya Rudolph is such an incredible actor literally every moment of this completely artificial piece of, of of falsity literally every moment she is inhabiting something real and something that's connected why i to watched something. all eight episodes too is that she is really the protagonist of the show everything and she's great. she does is is authentic and connected and yet she's in a world predominantly including fred armison which is just completely airsats and plastic all the way through can can we we have to spoil now because i have to talk about the fundamentally cruelest thing that this show does to the viewer all right so from here forth we are going to just describe everything that happens in the show if you care to watch this piece of falsity for the shining glow of maya rudolph at its center and you prefer to do so unspoiled you can skip ahead to our endorsements and our plus but honestly don't worry about it yeah forget about it just keep listening i wait i'm making a tiny peep here just to say that I did not hate this show okay. as much as you guys did. All right, fine. If you're if you're a Dana stan, <laughs> you can fast forward if you don't want to be spoiled. Hey, producer Ben here. The spoiler section for this segment is going to last seven and a half minutes. So if you want to skip the spoilers for forever, um, just fast forward seven and a half minutes. At the at the ski trip, at the end of the ski trip, which has been, uh, you know, suggested by Maya Rudolph because she's feeling so suffocated by the trout amandine at the lake house. Uh, and then she has a bad day and she goes and gets a glass of rosé at the bar and begins to flirt with a Vancouverite and uh, Fred Armisen goes for one last run. At the end of that episode, Fred Armisen runs into a tree and dies. And then in episode two, we experience Maya Rudolph as a widow. And if you are a person who's been reading the coverage and knowing that there's a spoiler, you're like, oh my God, this is going to be a show about Maya Rudolph that doesn't have Fred Armisen in it. Why did they lard up all the promotional materials with Fred Armisen? If they just told me it was going to be a Maya Rudolph finding herself show, (laughs) I would have been so on board. Like what a colossal failure of marketing. And I didn't think that. I thought he was going to be a ghost who came back. She begins to loosen up and she's trying to figure out herself and she nervously goes on a job interview and through a extremely false set of circumstances ends up with a sweet new job and then 
exciting gimmick. She dies at the end of the second episode as she's about to escape to Hawaii. And um, Fred Armisen's back. Yeah. (laughs) And then just Fred Armisen's there. And you're like, no, Fred, no. The first thing you see at the beginning of episode three after her death is her eyes opening, coming to in the afterlife. And there's Fred Armisen (laughs) right in your face. Never to go away. I mean, I don't even hate Fred Armisen. Like, he, he did some funny sketches on SNL there's the whole story about him and Elizabeth Moss and maybe he's a jerk or maybe he's not like who knows I don't think he's a terrible comic I just don't think he's a good actor and everything he's in is a sketch and Maya Rudolph is so much more and I guess that fundamental disjuncture like the defense of this show is that that disjuncture is what this is about it's like a marriage that is full of comedy but Come itty like C O M I T Y, uh, but not a- an actual match and the and the disjointedness of it. Like you could argue that that's the point, but I don't think it's the point. I think that the people who made the show are like, oh, the two of the great comedians of our generations, hooray! What a fun duo. We'll make a great show. And meanwhile, you're like, the good place exists and is excellent. Like, why am I in another afterlife with a different bunch of comedians that's done less well? Uh, screw this. But but also Catherine Keener shows up in episode four and I stopped watching there. And generally when Catherine Keener shows up, it's good. So I think this is part of why I kept watching. It's just I mean, Maya Rudolph and Catherine Keener are doing things like I, I, I almost don't care what they're doing. I will just watch them do it. And there's a lot of adventures that the two of them go on. Granted, very puzzling adventures that we're not exactly sure what point they're supposed to be proving. But I, this is what I will say for the show. It's it's weird. I mean, you don't expect what it's going to do. I completely agree that the things that you say are bad about it are bad, but it's not bad in a way that's particularly recognizable from other shows. It has its own strangely dead kind of flopping like a fish on a deck <laughs> kind of tone. It's and, really true. It has that like, how did this get made kind of wonderment. And uh, and so, yeah, it's not like you're sort of shoving it into a slot of, oh, that kind of show, right? It's this new sort of bad that's interesting somehow to explore. But the Good Place comparison is one that's worth exploring. The whole thing of The Good Place, as far as I can see, right, is that it's all about what are the rules of the afterlife? We can't figure them out. They're constantly changing, right? There's kind of these complex configurations of what's good, what's evil, what's punishment, what's reward, what's moral behavior, what's immoral behavior. And those things are constantly being interrogated and, you know, poked fun at and shifted around. And this, well, back to the fish flopping on a deck image, like this show is about similar things in a way. It's about an afterlife in which there seems to be two different places, maybe one's good, one's bad. We're not quite sure. They voyage in between the two places. Um, But the rules of that universe seem sort of unstable, inconsistent, uninteresting. (laughs) 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 And it's just, it's hard to figure out why somebody embarked on the metaphysical journey of making this show about this imaginary afterlife if the imaginary afterlife was going to be so vaguely defined and so not different from our own existence. It seems like it's less interested in questions of morality and more interested in questions of like indefinite union, right? Like, what does it mean to love someone forever till you die? What would it mean if that was extended? And I think the idea is supposed to be that this marriage between June and Oscar is like pretty happy and yet still just the sameness of it is is blearying. And because Fred Armisen is such a, I don't know, potted plant of an actor, 
that that fundamental premise feels false. Like it, if it were really, I'm trying to think of the actor in that role that you would have. I don't think Daniel Day Lewis could make that into something <laughs> real. I I I think I would watch that. Though. That I, would be interesting. I would I would too. But I think he all, goes back from retirement to do this, for this. forever. I think all they're hanging it on is, wow, being married to the same person for a long time can get kind of boring, huh? Like, I think that's the idea at the heart of the show. And like, it's probably a true idea. It's not a, you can't hang a whole show on that idea. But they but they are whether or not they're interested in the ideas about the afterworld. They are certainly exploring them at great length. Right. I mean, there's a lot more going on besides Fred Armisen and Maya Rudolph being bored with each other, especially Julia after Catherine Keener steps in and there start to be adventures outside of the household of those. Two. You're the only person here who's watched the episode. <laughs> Possibly the only the person on the planet. Describing. Yeah. <laughs> You know, the one of the things that I think this question of is it is it about infinite coupledom as opposed to the afterlife? There's a way in which the structure of the show, it's ostensibly about infinite coupledom. And you could make a very interesting afterlifey show that was not about morality and was about endlessness of a union. And that could be totally interesting. Like, what is that conversation that what is the real thing that couples talk about after 18 years that's not like, what's the all-time best way to sit? If you imagined a writer or, or someone who was really thinking that through, those could that could be totally interesting terrain to explore, potentially, or like bo- interesting in its boringness or something. Like, if it were true, if it felt real, that could be uh, a thing. But then it sort of feels like that's the question they're supposedly interested in, but then the plots are like these plate-spinning bullshit about the mechanics of how people get haunted and you're like, well, yeah, all right. There's also one episode which maybe you guys didn't get to. That's a, a, a total bottle episode. That's about a couple that has that is is still alive and has nothing to do with Maya and Fred. Did you get to that episode? No. Certainly not. <laughs> so if we have any listeners who have got to that episode, I would be curious to hear what you made of it because it was a moment that I thought, oh, this is going to become a show that sort of skips around into the living world and shows things that they're observing among the currents, as they call people that are still currently alive. Um, and no, it really is just a complete ship in a bottle, bottle episode that exists on its own that has Maya Rudolph in it for one second and that I don't quite understand what it's doing there. Was it any was that one any better? Uh it was different. <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm I'm I have the weakest possible defense of this show, which is that at least it's bad in its own special way. <laughs> All right. And scene. (laughs) We will leave it there. If you have thoughts, if, like me, you're one of the few who has made it through the entirety of forever, come and tell us about it. Facebook.com slash CultureFest. So we've come to the time in our podcast where we endorse our favorite cultural object experience thing that we encountered during the week. Gabriel, what do you have? All right. I'm going to endorse the show that I wished I was watching the whole time I was watching forever, which is The Good Place. We talked about the comparison a little bit. Um, the Good Place is a sitcom. If you haven't seen it, it's a sitcom on NBC. And and it seems at first to be a pretty straightforward sitcom set in the afterlife starring Kristen Bell and Ted Danson, which fine. Those are both very funny performers and it's a funny show. Um, if you keep going through the first season, which it took me a little while to make it there, the stuff, the, the places where it goes by the end of the first season and into season two, uh is is surprising and funny and and thought-provoking and delightful and and if you haven't yet binged your way into season two of the good place uh, i urge you to check it out and as a subsidiary endorsement the good place podcast which is an official promotional appendage of the good place and features the cast and crew and writing staff of the good place discussing episodes of the good place is actually really listenable and fun 
Oh, that is good stuff. I didn't know about that podcast. All right, Julia, what have you got? Uh, so my children, as I think I've mentioned on the show, have become obsessed with Hamilton, causing me to listen to Hamilton a lot, causing them to have lots of opinions about the early republic. Uh, and as a fun family adventure, a couple of weeks ago, we walked down to Federal Hall in downtown Manhattan, where Washington was inaugurated, as you may or may not know. This is near the Stock Exchange. It's near Wall Street. It's a you know, kind of the crooked, twisty-streeted old part of New York that... Um, is from before the grid. And, you know, Federal Hall is a public building. It has some sets of public services there and some uh, exhibits that are open to the public and you can just walk through it. And in it is the Bible on which Washington was sworn in. Like it's just there in a glass box and kind of like not a very formal museum. You don't pay admission. There's sort of a bunch of kind of there's a weird art installation of like a Dutch house and it's a bit of a hodgepodge, you know, there's like a bunch of model soldiers uh, set up in a display representing the the inaugural parade for the first inauguration for the inauguration of Washington. But you know how certain ancient objects just have aura just in this like plexiglass box that it sort of looked like someone had fashioned from scratch um, is this Bible, just this huge fat book, old and brown um and the notion that Washington got sworn in on that object was so powerful and emanating. And to see it at this moment when our presidency is so uh, currently brought low by a disgusting <laughs> serial abuser of women who's trying to get a serial gross man appointed to the highest court in the land was just like, God, this is a longstanding institution and a lot of things have happened to it. And maybe it's about to all go away, but maybe it will endure and in 200 years from now, someone will still be able to look at Washington's Bible and be like, hey, got a got a nice little democracy here. It all worked out. So I recommend visiting Federal Hall and clocking Washington's Bible. Well, I wonder if it was his family Bible that had, you know, like his family tree in it and things like that. I don't think it was his personally. And it said on the um, sign that it had been conjured out of retirement and used in subsequent inaugurations by an interesting array but anyway, it was sort of interesting. I like the notion of selecting which document you get sworn in on isn't a part of the presidency I've given serious thought to. And uh, it was kind of fun to think like, huh, give us your endorsement and I will I will fish around and see if I can figure this out. My endorsement is related to one of our topics. Uh, or in a way, I guess it's related to the Hockenberry, Gomeshi, harassment, Kavanaugh, you know, mushrooming Me Too story. And uh, it's in a way an endorsement of a person, a writer, but it is also one specific a recent column by this person. So the writer is Alexander Petri from the Washington Post, who's sort of their humor columnist. I just found out researching her that she's the youngest columnist ever to have been hired by the Washington Post. So she is maybe in her 30s. I guess she's a millennial. She's very, very funny. Her her column is almost always some sort of absurdist take on what's going on in the news, often taking the point of view of someone in the news and trying to imagine how they would cast, you know, this this story from their own uh, bizarre vantage point. But just recently, I, I think like all of us, utterly disgusted and exhausted and sort of shamed by everything that's going on in our, our culture and in discussions of of gender relations and Me Too, she wrote a very serious column and a beautiful column about Brett Kavanaugh that's called Some Interpersonal Verbs Conjugated by Gender. Did you guys see this column? No. It's really extraordinary. I'm just going to read a little bit of it so you get an idea of, of what it is and how playfully she, she uses language, but to very serious effect. 
So the title, Some Interpersonal Verbs Conjugated by Gender. Unit 1. He is drinking. He is drunk. He was drunk. He is just 17. He was just 17. Remember that he is just a kid. Remember that he was just a kid. You must remember he was just a kid. He cannot know what he is doing. He could not know what he was doing. He cannot have known what he was doing. And then skipping ahead to the next paragraph. She is drinking. She is drunk. She was drunk. She is 15. She was 15. She is putting herself in this position. She put herself in this position. She should know better. She should have known better. She must think about his future. She must think about her future. She must say nothing. She will say nothing. She says nothing. She said nothing. It goes on in this vein, but she manages to tell the story of these two kind of refractory points of view just using this sort of grammar textbook language. And it's an unusual column for her because it's less uh, goofy and antic, but it's just as sort of verbally uh, acute as most of what she writes and is, I think, an unusual but great introduction to her writing. I feel like I'm constantly tweeting Alexandra Petri headlines and saying, why isn't everyone reading Alexandra Petri? Um, and I hope this will turn a few more people onto her writing in the post. I will seek that one out. I had, not, I had missed that one. Uh, I found a handy article on Mental Floss here that says, Washington's inauguration took place not in D.C., but at Federal Hall in New York, where Congress met at the time. Everything else had been prepared for the ceremony when someone realized that no one had brought a holy Bible for Washington to swear on. Jacob Morton, a mason and the master of the nearby St. John's Lodge, oh, this is some Illuminati shit, uh, offered to run and grab the Bible from the altar at St. John's. With no other options readily available, Chancellor of New York Robert Livingston gladly took him up on it. During the ceremony, Washington placed his right hand on the text, which was open to Genesis 49.13. Don't search too hard for any meaning. The Library of Congress says it was opened at random due to haste. So Washington was sworn in on a Masonic Bible from a Masonic Lodge. And then the the subsequent presidents were Harding, Eisenhower, Carter, and H.W. Bush. And George W. Bush hoped to use it at his inauguration in 2001, but it was raining and no one wanted to risk damaging such a precious artifact. And that's why he wasn't a real president. <laughs> Julia, I have one follow up on your son's obsession with Hamilton, which Mm -hmm. is something that I keep telling people whose kids are really into Hamilton, but they don't or can't spend the enormous amount of money that it takes to take them to Hamilton. Have you seen Hamilton's America, the PBS show about the making of the play? No, we've been reading the big coffee table book about it, um, which they are enjoying. But tell me more about the show. Well, I mean, essentially... it's sort of as close as you can get to see the show is not a movie, obviously, but you can see large portions of the actual show filmed really well in such a way that you can sort of see what's going on on stage and also see a lot of background about the making of it and, you know, the orchestration of it and the writing of it. And there's also some historical exploration. So if your sons are into going and looking at old artifacts, there's some scenes where Lin-Manuel and other members of the show's crew or cast go around and, you know, tour historical sites or go to the mansion mm-hmm. that Hamilton and Eliza lived in. And uh, anyway, it's it's sort of great for your your Hamilton fandom at home. Uh, it's called Hamilton's America on PBS. Cool. All right. I will check that out. We have we've now visited Hamilton's grave as well. We've not yet gone to Weehawken, but uh, I have a feeling that it may be in our future. Francis Tavern. Take him to Francis oh, Tavern. We did. Lunch. We did. Oh, man. Full on. Yep. All right. Thanks for those endorsements, y'all. Those were great. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page at slate.com slash culturefest, or you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. You can also always drop us a note on Facebook at facebook.com slash culturefest. And of course, we have a Twitter feed at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Julia Turner and Gabriel Roth, I am Dana Stevens, and we'll talk to you next week.